Welcome to Reflections on Buddhism on 90.7 FM, KSQD Santa Cruz. Reflections on Buddhism is a monthly radio show with Buddhist monastic Venerable Tenzin Choki, and it bridges the world of Buddhist thought and the latest research into positive psychology. I'm your host, Matthew DeVaris, and each month we'll select a topic where we can weave together Buddhist wisdom with the science of mind, and then apply these concepts to everyday life in a practical way. Welcome, Venerable. Thank you, Matthew. Good to see you. So today we wanted to talk about there's a lot going on in the world, and I think that's the understatement of the century. And a lot of these situations can feel really frightening and and often feel overwhelming. And I, I, you know, I know I speak for myself when it's, I feel like I vacillate in the face of these often terrible situations between anger and then this sort of inaction or, or complacency. And so we thought about, you know, why, why not for this episode, talk about the differences between acceptance and complacency, because I think rather than being sort of a hair-splitting etymological exercise, I think there's probably a lot of wisdom that can be revealed in the space between these two uh, states of mind. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind starting the conversation by talking a bit about, in your view, the differences between acceptance and complacency. Yeah, and again, this is such an important conversation, you know, especially now when things feel on many levels you know, quite overwhelming. We were talking right before we started recording about how, you know, it feels like at this time, there's so many levels of stressors all the way from the global with climate change to the kind of international conflicts like the war in Ukraine and so many other situations. And of course, the national here for people in the U.S., what's going on in our country, the gun violence, all the way down to the very personal. So how do we cope, you know, when there's just multiple stressors at all of these different levels? And I think, you know, in Buddhism, we talk a lot about acceptance. And I think that can be often misconstrued as a kind of complacency or passivity. You know, often people who I think don't know that much about Buddhist practice. And they're like, oh, you all are just sort of escapist navel gazers, you know, and we're not actually uh, interacting with our own kind of personal situation. We're just kind of going off and turning inward and shutting down and, you know, acceptance as sort of a synonym to complacency. And I think that there's a balance, there's kind of a fulcrum there that we can accept what's going on without the kind of resistance to reality that leads to more suffering on the one hand or denial on the other hand, you know, sometimes as a way of dealing with all the stressors, we just tune out completely and withdraw and say, oh, I'm not going to check into the news. I'm not going to do this. I'm just going to like focus on the positive. And I think that's a way of kind of withdrawing or we just feel so overwhelmed. We feel, oh, there's nothing I can do. And then the kind of complacency. And then sometimes that can be framed almost as something spiritual. Like we can say, oh, well, there's nothing to be done. The Buddha said, let go and accept, 
So I'm, you know, being a spiritual person by not engaging. Engaging is just going to upset my mind. Engaging is just going to, you know, upset my peace of mind. So I think the, the acceptance that allows us not to feel like we're just resisting and struggling against reality, but with the clear seeing that motivates us to transformative action, both for ourselves inwardly and externally also. And getting that balance right, it's tricky and it's worth, it's definitely worth a conversation. So I'm really happy that you proposed this topic because it can be subtle, the difference, but I think really fundamental to, to spiritual practice is differentiating between acceptance, which leads to clear seeing, which leads to action and transformation versus a kind of passive complacency. So I always think of complacency as being very, very passive, as you've just said, but there is an active component and the active component seems to be really working against seeing what is actually happening in a way and and sort of denying what's happening around you. Whereas acceptance, I think you're engaged with what's happening, but you're not you're not throwing up your hands. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And there's a, you know, there's another level of that complacency, which I think includes a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. And it's, again, you know, in Buddhism, we would say it's the wrong view that our actions don't matter at all, right? So that's a big part of it. The reason that we go into denial or throwing up our hands, we just think I'm not going to make any difference at all. What I do, what I say, my actions, my thoughts, my efforts are useless. So there's this real flavor of kind of hopelessness in that too, you know, which in, in, and in the Buddhist view, we say, and this is where we can kind of engage and try and get the balance back is to say, our actions are not wasted. Even the smallest action has an impact. You know, Buddha, the Lord Buddha said this. I mean, Newton said it, the third law of motion, you know, Einstein said it, there's conservation of mass and energy. It's sort of like our actions are never wasted. We may not see the impact in the moment directly as as an outcome that we want, but it doesn't mean that we should just throw up our hands and say, there's nothing I can do at all, just because we single-handedly can't save the world you know, that's such an extreme. So the two extremes would be like either I need to single-handedly be the hero and the savior, or that I can't do anything. And there's just so much space in between those two extremes and having the trust in the impact of our actions, I think is what gets us out of that extreme of that complacency and helplessness and hopelessness. And I think the, the striving on the other end of the spectrum, which I know sometimes I I can certainly vacillate between a sense of complacency and then I'm going to step in and make the situation right, which I think you might also say is destructive. Definitely can be, you know, I, and, you know, often we talk about burnout, you know, that's something that's really entered the conversation a lot. 
In fact, I heard that the, the uh, compassion burnout, I think it's in the DSM, the Diagnostical and Statistical Manual of like Mental Health, is compassion burnout is, is uh, now being talked about a lot more, especially in, with healthcare workers. And there's an aspect of that, which is attachment to a specific outcome, sometimes attachment to our role in being the helper, for example. And so I think there's a lot of ways that we can look at that, you know, some of the factors that lead to that kind of burnout. And of course, it's not just healthcare workers. I see it in social and political activists all the time. You know, they work hard to change the world, sacrifice everything, work for almost no pay at some well-meaning nonprofit, and then they don't see the results they expect in the short term. And then they give up, you know, and and kind of opt out. And so I think, you know, looking at things like, what's my reason for helping? What's my motivation for helping? How much of it is about me and about fulfilling my own wish to be meaningful, which of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's the only reason for doing something or that people will see me as the helper or I'll feel that I... I'm not a total waste of oxygen, like there's something that I'm doing. So really checking our own motivation and having a little bit of humility about the outcomes. We can have an idea of what an outcome should be, and we're working really, really hard towards that specific outcome, but it can really narrow our vision to the impact of our actions that might be in ways that we're not expecting. So I think having humility, doing what we think is the right thing in the moment, but with a sense of perspective of like, I don't know what the right thing really is. I'm going to put my energy into this situation, let go of, you know, looking for short-term results, just do it out of my own sense of integrity because it feels like the right thing to do and just be open and keep talking to people and keep strategizing and you know, that, I mean, our, our vision can be so narrowed also by what we think the right solution could be. And it may just be from our own very limited perspective and we're not kind of seeing the whole situation. I think I can see in what you're saying on, you know, particularly on social media, but even in the broadcast media, how, whether it's gun legislation or the climate crisis or any number of the big topics of the day, how this sort of what I think becomes an obsession with the outcome really leads to just a complete breakdown in the ability to work with someone who holds a different uh, opinion. And yet it's so self-righteousness is such a, such a feel good in the, in the short term, but it's such a destructive uh, emotion. And it means that we really block any any uh, possibility of actually having a productive conversation. We see that in our political realm right now. I teach this um, conflict management skills course for the Conflict Resolution Center. And in that, we talk about, we kind of present this model of an iceberg. And we say that people have certain positions, like people in conflict will have a position that they hold really strongly to. And that's kind of what's sticking up above the surface. But what's underlying the surface is uh, interests, needs, feelings, values. And this is where we can 
find some common ground and sometimes come up with a solution that's very different than the two polarized positions that we started out with. But without, again, the humility and the openness and the curiosity to talk to someone who holds a very different position than you and find out why. Have some curiosity. Why is it that they hold that position? What need of theirs is getting fulfilled? What are the feelings that they have? What are their values? What are they interested in? And then that's kind of the only way to find any kind of compromises in these situations or just creative outcomes that, you know, may be quite different than the two polarized positions that you start out with. But yeah, it feels good to hold a strong position and to feel righteous about it and feel that you're on the side of right and might and you're not going to give an inch. But wow, not very productive when it comes to, you know, problem solving some of these huge things. I really admire the uh, CNN CNN uh, journalist and, and political activist Van Jones, and he is often criticized. I think I've mentioned this before on this radio show. I admire him so much because he, he has a unique ability to do this, and he'll work with people completely different political views, but to work to find the common ground, like he's worked with both Newt Gingrich and Jared Kushner on prison reform, because he realized prison reform is something he's really interested in, even though their positions in politically in terms of so many things couldn't be more diametrically opposed, but they were interested in prison reform. So he kind of put the differences to the side and worked with them to try and like develop some bipartisan bills on prison reform. And that takes a great noble kind of humility to be able to do that. And not many of us could, but I think that's the key right there, you know, and the key to moving forward and not just uh, being so stuck in this feeling of hopelessness and helplessness. If we stay entrenched in our positions, yeah, it's hard to imagine how some of these situations are going to change. But I think there are ways that we really can kind of move forward out of that stuck place that complacency can lead us to. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Reflections on Buddhism on KSQD and ksqd.org. Venerable Tenzin Choki's journey into ordination began in the 1970s with an interest in meditation that flourished into a year studying Tibetan Buddhism in India and Nepal in 1991. After six years of long meditation retreat, Venerable Tenzin took monastic ordination with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in 2004. Venerable Tenzin is taught in Buddhist centers and prisons all around the world, and she's a certified teacher of Stanford University's Compassion Cultivation Training, as well as the Cultivating Emotional Balance Program. You can find Venerable Tenzin online at unlockingtruehappiness.org, which features her teaching schedule, podcast of the same name, and a number of useful resources. Again, that's unlockingtruehappiness.org. It strikes me that a lot of what is sort of required to find this productive middle ground is also sort of a deep vulnerability because you're acknowledging that you may 
not be right, may not have the answer, and certainly don't have the control of the outcome, and yet you're able to meet that those circumstances with grace. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's where Buddhist practice, for me, really helps, because it's a clear seeing and acknowledging of, yeah, there are these problems, both externally, internally, I do have disturbing emotions, you know, I have fixed positions, I have selfish interests, all of that's in the mix. So the acceptance comes from accepting that things are not perfect. I think often our perfectionism can lead to so much, you know, denial about the reality of both our ourself and our own inner life and the external life. We're like trying to pretend or, you know, perfection will come if we just try a little bit harder or strive a little bit more. One of the big gifts of Buddhist practice for me was being able to see, oh, even internally, yes, I have, you know, all kinds of motivations from my own interest. It's mixed with altruistic motivation, but that's just the way it is. Can I at least look at it? The acceptance says, look at it clearly, try and bring it into awareness, work at transformation slowly, not making myself wrong or bad or, you know, demonizing myself because I do maybe have these mixed motivations for things. And so, you know, yeah, I think, I think that's a big part of the, the, you know, balancing the acceptance and the transformation comes with accepting that things are a mixed bag. It's not all, all good or all bad. And it's not a problem that it's not, it's just the nature of reality that it's not again, both externally and internally. Which brings me to, I, I, one of the aha moments as we as we talk about this because obviously we're we're navigating an external world but we're also navigating an internal world that is sometimes more fraught than the external world and i had heard you know we talk a lot in buddhist teachings that the first noble truth is very much about suffering and the and the nature of life being one of suffering and yet i think to a western ear suffering is such an extremely uh, charged term and, and sort of so far on the extreme. And I've, I've heard you describe the first noble truth in a, in a more relatable term. I'm wondering if you could speak about that a little bit. Sure. Sure. And yeah, in the Buddha, like it's interesting because sometimes people start to study Buddhism. They, read about the four noble truths. And the first one usually glossed as the truth of suffering. The second one, the truth of the cause of suffering. And sometimes people check out right there because they go, oh, the Buddha was just a pessimist. Why do you guys only talk about suffering? But the Buddha said, again, we need to see the nature of things clearly before we can work on the solution. Denial doesn't help. And so what he was trying to point to is our own subjective experience and then, of course, the last two of the noble truths are the truth of the of the cause, the truth of the path, and then the truth of the cessation of suffering. So a path leading to the cessation of that suffering, people ignore that part. They just get all caught up in the first one, the truth of suffering. And like you say, without really understanding the nuance of what that word means, and thinking, oh, the Buddha was just a pessimist. I'm not suffering. Suffering sounds so intense. As I often say in classes, it sounds like, 
you know, horrible car accidents, bitter divorces, you know, heart attacks. But the the word, the Sanskrit word that's used for, that's often translated as suffering is uh, the word dukkha. And the etymology, it actually means something like something's out of kilter. We just can't get it right. It has this etymology that relates to the, the wheel in the middle of, or the hole in the middle of the wheel that an axle goes through. And when it's out of kilter, like the wagon just doesn't drive smoothly. And so thinking of that in terms of our lives, like it's just not a smooth ride. That's what this is talking about. And I think we can all relate to that, you know, and the Buddha talked about one way of unpacking suffering. He talked about it in many different ways or this dukkha. And in one explanation, he said, oh, we don't get what we want, you know, and like check the box next to that one. We don't get what we want. We do get what we don't want. And then this is my personal favorite. We get what we thought we wanted and that would make us happy. And it's like disappointing or the happiness runs out. So that thing of, you know, having even an idea of what we want, what will make us happy. We work really hard to get it. And then afterwards, we're left with this feeling of like, wow, that's it. Like, really? So I think that we can all relate to, you know, we all feel that. I mean, yes, there are also the wars in Ukraine and the horrible car accidents and climate change. But just on that, you know, daily level, we're always seeking happiness. Buddhism, we say, we've got about a thousand to one thoughts of what's going to feel good next to, I want to avoid that thing that feels bad. Like mostly we're going through life every second going, what's going to feel good next? What's going to feel good next? And then how often are we disappointed or the good feeling runs out? Psychologists talk about this. They talk about, there's a fancy psychological word, hedonic adaptation. And so they say, even if we get something that feels pleasant, that we're really enjoying, it doesn't last. We adapt to it. And I'm like, the Buddha talked about that 2,500 years ago. The psychologist just kind of came up with this idea in the last 20 years, but the Buddha was talking about that. So that adaptation that we have that causes suffering because then we adapt and then we want the bigger, brighter, shinier, better, yummier thing. And then we adapt to that and then we want more and then we want more. So in, I just came back from a teacher training of a program that I teach called Cultivating Emotional Balance. And in that, we talk about two domains of happiness. We talk about hedonic happiness, which is the happiness that comes from sensory pleasure. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's just that if we depend on 100% of our happiness coming from that, we're just bound to be disappointed over and over and over again. And so we also talk about what we often call genuine well-being. There was Aristotle used a Greek word eudaimonia for this, this genuine well-being, which is a kind of happiness that comes from our inner resources, developing our inner resources, and then bringing good to the world through our own altruistic actions to help. And that's much more stable it's much more within our control, 
right? Because we can't control what's happening externally, but we do have a little bit of control over our own minds and developing that happiness. So the Buddha really talked about that too. You know, again, this is ideas from modern psychology really corroborated by Buddhism because when he talked about the causes of suffering and the path leading to the result of no, no more suffering, it was really the internal transformation that he was talking about. So I think going back to what we were talking about with acceptance, complacency, hopelessness, if we get a confidence that we can always engage in that internal transformation, and then some trust that our internal transformation also it impacts the outside world, right? That's where that feeling of hope comes from that'll counteract that complacency. Like we can always take control of our own mind. We just need to learn the techniques and the tools to do that. And then having some trust in this sort of ripple effect of that will impact our the people around us that will impact our own environment. So it does also have an external impact. And I think that's kind of the balance of acceptance and transformation, which is what we're looking at, like accepting where we are, but realizing that we're a work in progress and we can transform. We're changing moment to moment. It's another thing Buddhism really talked about is the reality of the changeable nature of every existing thing, including our own body and mind. So thinking that we're stuck in the place that we are right now, you know, is just, it's just not reality. And so we can change and transform depending on what we do with our minds in the same way that we do with an exercise program with our bodies. So just kind of having to trust in that, I think gets us out of that stuck place of complacency. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Reflections on Buddhism with Venerable Tenzin Choki on KSQD 19.7 FM and KSQD.org. You can find out more about Venerable Tenzin's upcoming classes by visiting her website at unlockingtruehappiness.org. We'll be back after a short break. What we're talking about reminds me of a quote that you've, I know, quoted quite a bit and Roshi Joan Halifax quoted at the start of the COVID pandemic, which is that um, optimism, you know, if we look at optimism, pessimism and hope, optimism is looking at the coming winter and saying everything will be fine. We don't need to do anything. (laughs) Pessimism it looks more like looking at the impending winter and saying we're all going to die. So we don't need to do anything. <laughs> and hope is putting a few potatoes in the cellar and, you know, <laughs> in preparation for the chance that you might survive. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if we relate that to this conversation, pessimism and op- and optimism both have a real strong flavor of complacency because there's no action required. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I mean, optimism, according to that, that metaphor actually apparently comes from the author Barbara Kingsolver. Uh, Roshi Jones right. credits Barbara Kingsolver for that great writer. And I love that too, because optimism is almost like, yeah, we'll be fine. It's this sort of Pollyanna thing of like, oh, it's all good. It's all going to be fine. Like the universe will provide or something. 
Whereas hope isn't just that. It does require action on our part. And so I think that's the difference. Like we accept, oh, it's going to be a hard winter. And we go, okay, if I, you know, I will put some potatoes in the root cellar because that's the only way I really will survive. Like, yes, it's going to be really hard and there is something I can do. So it's like the acceptance plus the hopefulness that engages in some transformative action. And I think we, you know, we really are required always, but especially in the time with so many challenges to engage in that you know, get that balancing act right of acceptance and transformation. I also am struck by something you said a few minutes ago, which is that I think there's a temptation as we look at certainly events in the world stage, but even attributes of ourselves to make them so concrete and absolute. And yet it strikes me that that's a very unrealistic view because of the laws of dependent arising. Can you speak a bit about how that might relate to the sort of might in a way undermine the, this feeling of helplessness and the fact that these circumstances are so unshakable. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. You know, I was just talking about that last week in this training I was doing and I was saying, you know, one advantage to kind of being old is that you've seen a lot of change in the world in your lifetime. And I was sharing with people, I remember, you know, in the early sixties, as a small child in primary school, you know, we would have these air raid drills. It was like the height of the Cold War. I think it was around the time of like the Cuban Missile Crisis or whatever. And we would have these drills and we're instructed as like five-year-olds to get under the desk with our little five-year-old arms, like over our heads. You know, at that point, the Soviet Union just felt like this solid permanent monolith that we were in, you know, the Cold War, we were in opposition. And then, of course, in the late 80s and early 90s, the whole thing kind of dissolved in Eastern Europe, the so-called Iron Curtain. I mean, what sounds more solid than an Iron Curtain, for heaven's sakes, you know? And then just due to all of these changes, just kind of dissolved almost from within without a war being fought. And, you know, apartheid in South Africa, same thing, like people's Ideas change, people's thoughts change, the world change. So it really helps for me when I feel discouraged to look at these things that seem so monolithic, you know, the British occupation of India that lasted for so long. And then again, they, you know, Mahatma Gandhi with his great vision, and then they left voluntarily, you know, as a result of decades and decades of nonviolent resistance towards the British occupation of India. So It does help me when I get discouraged to go, wow, if enough people really band together, change can happen. You know, sometimes they'll be a charismatic leader, but of course it's not up to the Martin Luther Kings and the Mahatma Gandhis. There are like thousands and thousands and thousands of people who led to those those big changes. And so for me, you know, that's kind of how transformation happens in these big shifts. Because if we think that things are so permanent, yeah, then we're we're definitely not going to think that there's anything that we can do. Even something like the two-party system in the United States of America is a result of causes and conditions in our political system. And that could change too. You know, that 
it seems so stuck and so monolithic, especially right now that there's almost no votes that go across the aisle, as they say. But there's nothing permanent about that either. So holding that in mind, because then that allows for our energy to have some kind of an impact on the situation. But yeah, if we hold things to be concrete and monolithic and unchanging, nothing more discouraging than that, for sure. I think part of an attribute that that I think relates to this is this idea of self-criticism and, and certainly criticism of others, because I think when confronted by difficult situations, it can sometimes be quite difficult to be forgiving to yourself and your the difficult emotions that are arising and, and to sort of to know what to do. Do you have thoughts about how we can maybe cultivate space within ourselves during those difficult circumstances or difficult emotions or, you know, yeah. when confronting some of these situations? You know, it, uh, in the, in the uh, modality that I teach the Stanford compassion cultivation training, we spend a lot of time on self-compassion. And I think this is a place where this whole idea of like acceptance and complacency that we've been talking about and how do we, how do we kind of hold the space for our own internal struggles and difficulties, not just the external ones, but the internal ones really comes into play because self-compassion, we always say what it's not before we talk about what it is. And we say, you know, it's not uh, selfishness. It's not self-indulgence. It's not, you know, weakness. It's not all of these things. It's just holding yourself with that same kind of kind acceptance that we would a good friend, because I think that sometimes we can be harder on ourselves than we are on anyone else. And we have so little acceptance of ourselves. But again, that self-acceptance and self-compassion doesn't mean complacency either. So it's not the extreme of complacency. So can we, with that clear seeing of seeing that we too can transform, accept where we are, accept our faults, accept you know, the, the places in us that, you know, maybe we're not holding to our highest ideal, but without that harsh criticism and self-judgment, if we don't see our areas for growth, it's not going to be an opportunity for growth for us. So first we need to overcome our denial about our own, you know, we might call them faults or we might just call them, you know, opportunities for, for developing more. If we find, for example, we're less than patient, we tend to be critical and judgmental of others. If we don't see that, we're not going to be able to bring our attention there and transform it. That's why I love the verb sometimes for these qualities. We use the verb cultivation because there's this idea that as humans, we have all of these beneficial qualities innately but usually the, the um, object is very restricted to those close to us. Like we might have great patience with our child and be super impatient with coworkers, for example, or we might have great, you know, acceptance and lack of judgment for, you know, our family members or our best friends and judge harshly newscasters and politicians and people that we don't know at all. So it's about tapping in 
to the seed or the experience of that quality that we have. And then having, again, the hope and the trust that we can transform more. And I think that's the way we can overcome that harsh self-judgment and self-criticism. Many of us, many of us have the harshest kind of inner critic and that, that voice can be so loud. I might've mentioned on the show on a previous episode, I remember so clearly once doing a, a weekend retreat in New Zealand for a group of people and they came. And even though I'm not a psychotherapist, now I probably wouldn't even agree to do it. It, I, it was long ago for people who were experiencing anxiety and depression. And one of the exercises, it was a workshop format. And one of the exercises I had them do was sit quietly for 15 minutes and just write down their, their self-talk, like write their, down their inner narration. And then I paired them up and had them read it out loud to a partner, which was terrifying for them. But when they read it out loud, it was so ridiculous. It was like the harshest voice that even their worst enemy would never dare to talk to them like that. And then this whole room full of people was just in gales of laughter because it was so ridiculous. So we need to bring that attention to that voice and then realize the acceptance says, hey, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm not so patient with my coworkers and I'm really judgmental against people with a different political opinion. That's where I am right now. And can I see that clearly? Is there a way to transform that? Is there a way I can change my perspective? You know, look at things differently with that, but without... I think without the deep acceptance, it's too painful to look at our faults, you know, because it just increases that painful, harsh inner voice. So I think the self-acceptance, the self-kindness, the self-compassion, rather than keeping us stuck, because the research has shown that a lot of the resistance to self-compassion is people that think they need to be harsh with themselves in order to be a better person and in order to transform. But the research has actually shown, Kristen Neff, a researcher who's devoted her life to self-compassion, that actually if we're kinder with ourselves and more encouraging, we'll actually be able to transform more. So I think kind of having that trust in kind of the, the, the transformative impact of, of kindness and compassion towards ourselves instead of thinking that only by beating ourselves up will we become better people. And so the acceptance really underlies that as well. Yes, that's that's very interesting. And I think something that will really resonate with, certainly resonates with me. We talked last week about, or last month rather, about the sort of how to evaluate potential speech in the in the framework of right speech. And in that conversation, there was a, a really definite framework that you took us through in trying to evaluate if something that we were going to say was yeah. indeed skillful. Yeah. Is there is there a similar framework in Buddhism that could relate to if we feel called to to take action in a situation, is there a framework that we can use to evaluate if that action is skillful? Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, what comes to mind is another piece from the Cultivating Emotional Balance curriculum, 
And we were having a conversation last week about kind of our response to some of these global crises. And one person was saying, oh, I get so easily overwhelmed when I kind of tune into the news, tune, you know, really realize the impact of what's going on. Or she was saying she also feels like her action, her social justice act- activism, and her engagement leads to a lot of burnout. And so when I was talking to her, I, I thought of this paradigm that was developed by Alan Wallace, the meditation teacher and his colleagues called the four balances. And he talks about mental balance. And he said, this is composed of kind of four aspects, attentional balance, a balance of motivation or aspiration, emotional balance, and cognitive balance. And so I want to talk about this just briefly because it really relates to kind of a paradigm that we can apply to different situations in our life in terms of how can we engage skillfully in the same way that we do with our speech? How can we engage skillfully overall in these, in these different things that show up for us? And so the first piece Alan Wallace calls cognitive balance, and that's not a word we usually use, but cognitive refers to sort of our aspiration, our motivations, our intentions. And so, as I mentioned before, sometimes our intention for something can be altruistic and mixed with some sort of self-serving motivation, like I'll be seen as the hero, I'll be the helper. If I help them now, you know, tit for tat, they'll feel obligated to help me later. So bringing attention to balancing our motivation and aspiration and a clear seeing of what, you know, why am I engaging in this, in this situation? What are my intentions and what are my aspirations? And then just trying as much as possible to balance them from extremes of either a harmful motivation a self-serving motivation, a motivation that may not be in alignment with our own values. So that's one piece. And then the cognitive balance is clearly seeing, and I mentioned before this idea in Buddhism, and you mentioned the, the phrase dependent arising, that things, you know, things are a result of so many complex causes and conditions, like any one outcome is a result of such an almost an infinity of different causes and conditions coming together. So the cognitive piece is clearly seeing with that wisdom, the reality that things aren't stuck, they aren't concrete, they aren't monolithic, they are changing moment by moment by moment. So our causes do have an impact on the eventual result, maybe not in the short term, but the long term. So bringing that perspective, that perspective taking two situations of, yes, they are dynamic. They're always changing, no matter how huge the problem might seem. So that's the cognitive balance. And then the attentional balance. And this was interesting. We were talking, you know, with this one student and she was saying she you know, her friends and family tell her, oh, you're really overwhelmed. Like, just quit watching the news. Like, quit, just disengage completely. You're too overwhelmed. You know, your emotions are out of balance. You're always feeling sort of overwhelmed and despairing. They said, you know, just just quit engaging. And I said, well, maybe you could balance your attention. 
we talk in Buddhism, we have an aspect that are a practice that we call empathetic joy. And that's attuning to the good in the world, attuning to the positive things that ourselves and others do in the world and taking delight in that. So what I, what I suggested to her, in addition to all of the other balances, was an aspect of attentional balance. I said, if you notice you're focusing so much and just reading, what's the word, doom scrolling, like through your newsfeed and just reading 15 articles about, you know, the latest disaster, I said, it's not denial to balance that out with some of the positive. And I said, I was telling her, you know, one of my favorite things to do is read memoirs of these people who really have devoted their life to, you know, benefiting others, Nobel Prize recipients and other people, you know, I just love these memoirs where people really kind of transform hardship into action that they do to benefit the world. There's all kinds of websites. The Good News Network is one. Karma Tube is one. And so I suggested to the student, when you feel that despair, which is when compassion gets out of balance, right? Your attunement to the suffering actually goes to a sense of hopelessness and despair. I said, you know, engage in the attentional balance of offsetting that with the reality of like, there are these positive things happening too. There are people really banding together. They're standing up against injustice. They're standing up against climate change. So the attentional balance, and then all of that helps lead to emotional and mental balance. So that's a paradigm that I really love and and bringing to mind, you know, when we're feeling out of balance in some way, mentally, emotionally, attentionally, just looking at those four balances and how they all sort of support a sense of mental balance can be quite helpful. You're listening to Reflections on Buddhism with Venerable Tenzin Choki on 90.7 KSQD and ksqd.org on the web. So I think one of the things that potentially leads people to a state of inaction is, is not being able to clearly see or predict what the outcome of their assistance might be. And I think the the oft-cited example is having someone panhandling it in an intersection and giving them money and then they use the money to buy drugs and and overdose is sort of the very facile example that I've that I've heard brought up many, many times. And yet I think defaulting to inaction is not helpful either. So sort of what's a good way to to occupy that space of uncertainty of of just not knowing what what might happen? Yeah, yeah, that's such a good question. And, you know, I think that often can lead to, I don't know if I would call it complacency as much as just inaction or stuckness, but it might have a flavor of complacency of like, oh, I don't know how to help because I don't know the impact way downstream of my actions. We might even trust that our actions have an impact. We might even have gotten to the point of realizing, oh, yes, all of our actions are not wasted. They do lead to an impact. But then we're almost paralyzed by, but I don't know what that is. You know, I do my best to try and help, but what if my actions have a consequence that's completely unintended way downstream? But I think often people with the best intentions 
Or, or we might think, you know, going back to kind of Buddhist practice, and this is one complaint, oh, I'll just wait until I'm fully realized before I do anything to help others. And so there's often a complaint of, oh, you Buddhists just go off to monasteries meditating, and there's all these problems in the world you should be engaging with. But I think that's an extreme of thinking we need to have the perfect wisdom, almost a clairvoyance, you know, or an omniscience to know the impact of our actions. So for me, I think it's really important, again, to really check our motivations and intentions, try and bring as much awareness as we can to our intentions, try and bring as much wisdom into the action as we possibly can, Uh, maybe checking with people what is the most effective thing to do. Maybe if we check with people who know more about the situation, we'll find that maybe making a donation to a service that, you know, helps homeless people is more impact than just giving a dollar to every panhandler as we walk down the street. So I think we can try and bring some wisdom to the situation and humility and really check with people who are the experts in what is the most effective and best way to help. And, but not kind of sitting on our hands and waiting until it's perfect, then engaging with the best intention and as much wisdom as we can bring to the situation with the humility that says, I may not know what's best, but I'm going to do my best and just really at least rejoice in the in the outcome of the change in my mind of being, for example, more generous. You know, that we know is an impact. There is an impact in our own mind. So not going to the extreme of engaging in what some of our spiritual teachers call idiot compassion of just bringing, you know, trying to be compassionate and helpful in ways that are just really eventually either dysfunctional, destructive, or just miss the mark completely. And we can really check and asking with the recipient of the help, like what will help you? There's an example I mentioned often that I read in a book called How Can I Help by Ram Das and Stephen Gorman. It was published, I think, way back in the 80s, and it's classic. And I recommend it all the time. Hopefully it's, if it's not still in print, hopefully people can get it. And there was an example there that people were wanting to help unhoused people. And they thought, oh, we'll build a shelter, we'll, you know, make a soup kitchen. And then they realized, oh, maybe we should ask them what's most helpful, like having the humility to just ask the unhoused people. And the people said, oh, actually, we can't get services. I mean, that was decades before cell phones. They're like, we can't really get any social services because there's no way for people to get in touch with us. We don't have an address. We don't have a phone number. So these people started a little storefront with like cubby holes and a phone, a landline phone that they had volunteers answer so that the people who were unhoused and needed services had a way to get messages. It was so simple. It's so much cheaper than you know having a new soup kitchen So just that too, you know, that too, we don't have to come up with all the answers ourselves. Having the the humility and the curiosity to check 
with people who know better than us. And it's often the people that we want to help who really know what they need the most, you know? So I think, I think that's it. And then just trusting in our own best intentions and we're not going to get it perfect in the acceptance of, yeah, it won't be perfect, but we, we need to act, you know, for our own hearts and minds and the world needs us all. If we all just wait until we're fully realized, you know, that's that, that is not the answer to all the problems that we're facing these days at all. I love this combination of of curiosity and humility because I I think about that global aid programs that are spending billions and billions of dollars and yet, you know, one wonders, and I've seen many of them on the ground in the third world, and one wonders, did anyone actually think to check whether this was help <laughs> that people needed? Totally, um, totally. I think this combination of humility and curiosity and really checking with our intentions is is such a powerful way of really engaging in a way that we're providing the help that people need as opposed to providing the help that we want to provide, which is yeah, often yeah. not what people need. Yeah, exactly. I met there was a student in the in the training last week who is a French a French Canadian mother, Vietnamese immigrant dad he lived in Canada and he was born in Benin in West Africa which which is a country I've been to and so I was asking him about that and he said oh my dad you know that was back in the days where like the you know the western saviors went to like save the people and he's like my dad was an engineer and he went to save the people and I'm like oh yeah are we over that yet like every kind of gone beyond that because I certainly remember and we thought we were doing great things and sometimes we were but I, I was telling him about volunteering for one of those programs for a summer in West Africa and I got malaria and dysentery simultaneously which I do not recommend so I just became a burden on the local people who had to save me from dying like instead of helping anyone I just became this huge burden because I was so ill and then they were like worried about what they were going to do with my body after I died. So it was like, okay, I went over to help and just created all these problems. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Venerable Tanzan, thank you for a great conversation. Um, As always, it's most enjoyable and mind expanding to speak to you. (laughs) Thank you for the great questions, Matthew. And thank you for bringing up this topic. And I, yeah, I hope there's some benefit for our listeners. Thanks for listening to Reflections on Buddhism. You can find all our past episodes at ksqd.org, and you can learn more about Venerable Tenzin's upcoming classes and events, as well as subscribe to her podcast at unlockingtruehappiness.org. Again, that's unlockingtruehappiness.org.